The following episode discusses racism. Content may be sensitive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Imagine the year is 2005. You are 10 years old. You are 150 miles from your home, standing in a pitch black field at a school-sanctioned field trip, pretending to be a slave, your hands on the shoulders of your classmates, head down so you can only see the movement of their feet through the darkness. Nearby, someone is screaming obscenities at you, telling you to move. This is the reality of the Nature's Classroom Underground Railroad reenactment. I'm Sam Ben Alstein, and this is Wheelchair Parking Only. Two members of the Chatham High School class of 2013 had a brief seven-year reunion today on the show. I'm pleased to welcome my friend and classmate, Kelly Shanahan. Please note that these interviews are recorded remotely and audio may not be perfect. But hi, thank you for doing this. Thank you for inviting me to do it. I've like never really been interviewed before, I don't think. Well, there's a first time for everything. Right. All right. So we obviously were in fifth grade the same year, so 2005. Yes. Um, what do you remember from your experience of the reenactment? In nature's classroom? Yes. I... What do you remember from particularly the Underground Railroad experience, if anything? Yeah, so first of all, I really enjoyed Nature's Classroom for the most part. Um, I did but too. Me... I mean, I, I thought the counselors were a little sketchy, but... Yeah. For me, like, looking back, I wonder... I don't know, I guess looking back, it seems kind of strange that we were only 10 years old and they took us on a sleepaway trip for, like, five days. <laughs> yeah, that is strange. I've done... Um some pretty in-depth research um, about this topic over the past couple of days. Yeah. And um, I've seen a, uh, age range range from anywhere from like late middle school to like seventh, eighth grade to like high school yeah. that's typically participating in these type of things. Mm-hmm. So to take nine and 10 year olds is also very strange to me. Yeah. Because I remember, what I remember most about the Underground Railroad experience is the very beginning, because I remember it was after dark, and they brought us into, like, a gymnasium slash, like, multi-purpose room, and I don't really remember what they said when they were explaining to us what was going to happen, but I remember them saying, like, we're going to do a countdown, and then at the end of the countdown, like, the exercise is going to start, and they made mm-hmm. us all line up and face the walls. Do you remember that? See, my experience was very different from your guys's because obviously, as a wheelchair user, I can't run. Right. Yeah, so, so... how did you do it? Were you in your chair for it, or...? Okay, so they didn't make me run. What happened was, um, I don't remember if it was my group in particular or just me, but we were taken to like this little house in the middle of fucking nowhere, probably in the middle of the woods. Yeah. Um, and they were like, this is a safe house. You're gonna be a slave and you're gonna hide. Also, we're taking you out of your chair. Yeah. So, me being 10, I was like, okay, like, right. I, I want to do what my friends are doing, so okay, you can take me out of my chair, that's fine. Right. Um, and then we're like, yeah, you're gonna hide here, and I vaguely remember that it was a small, dark space. I'm not entirely sure it wasn't a cupboard. 
of some type. And they were just like laying on the floor and pretending to sleep. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I remember being in any other room besides when we started. I just remember yeah. so clearly like being marched through the woods in yeah. the dark. And I don't remember who was standing next to me, but they had us like in like really like close to each other, like in lines mm-hmm. and in groups. And I don't remember who was standing next to me. I think it was a girl, but I don't remember. But I just remember like we just reached out and grabbed each other's hands and we held hands the entire time. Yeah, I've heard that from people that I've spoken to, like that you couldn't see like three feet in front of your face. No, like the only way, cause they told us also to keep our heads down the entire time and to be quiet. And so the only mm-hmm. way that I knew where we were going was I was looking at the feet of the person in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I remember them stopping us at various points as they were marching us through the woods. Yeah. And like the camp counselors were playing the roles of like slave owners and bounty hunters and like police officers. And yeah. I remember at one point they stopped us and we were pretending that we were like in a wagon and we were under mm-hmm. like like animal pelts or something. Uh-huh. And I remember one of the camp counselors saying like, I think I see some eyes under there. They look like colored eyes. Interesting. I remember Now, that. in my research, I've discovered that the median age of a nature's classroom worker is 25. We're 25 now. We're 25 now. And I kind of, I remember them. You're right. They were kind of sketchy. I remember them all. They were all young. And I feel like they were all pot smokers too. Mm -hmm. Yes, They were really crunchy. (laughs) They were very crunchy. Yeah. But the thing that sticks out in my mind the most is I don't remember them giving us a rundown of what was going to happen before it started. No. And that makes me wonder... Um, because obviously parents have to sign permission forms for us to go to sleepaway camp. So I wonder what was in the permission form if that if parents were informed. Because from what I've gathered through social media is most parents didn't know that this was happening to their children. Yeah. And obviously, like, your experience was different than mine for many reasons. Yeah. Like, one, you're a wheelchair user. I'm not. Number two, you are a person of color and I'm not. So yeah. like I said, like I, at the time, it was definitely scary, but I was like, oh, like this is kind of cool, I guess. Mm-hmm. But looking back, I definitely don't think it was cool. Yeah, what are your thoughts on it as an adult, as a 25 year old who, take it back 10 years ago, that could have been you, right. reverse the roles. Right, you know, I feel like if it weren't so intense, like, I do, re- mm-hmm. I do remember racial language and racial slurs being thrown around by the camp counselors during the experience. Yeah. And I feel like, uh, first of all, I feel like that was inappropriate. But I think that, Definitely. Yeah, but I wonder- Especially like, because, like, we're, we're a smaller community. We're rural. Um, that's probably was some of our classmates' first experience with the N-word honestly right because i was thinking back and i was like i don't know i don't think i knew that word at 10 years old but i'm not sure but i mean i i did i also come from a blended a mixed family exactly Uh, all i understood is we do not say that word that word is bad exactly i wonder if it would have been less, I feel like it definitely would have been less intense and obviously less scary if we had been in high school when this happened. But as 10 year olds, we had no clue what was going on. And it was just, it was at night, people were yelling. They were telling us to keep our heads down. Like it was just a very hostile environment. Definitely. All right, you've seen my post on social media following this investigation. What do you have to say to the people who claim on playing the victim by bringing this to light? I just don't understand why that's even something anyone would say. Because it's clear, you made it clear that you were doing this for an episode of your podcast, you were doing research on it, and you wanted to hear people's opinions. And a lot of people got angry. Well, not a lot of people, a couple in particular. (laughs) But... I, they, yeah, they, they know who they are. We won't name names, but a couple of you got real mad. Right. And, but for the most part, the people who were commenting on your post were agreeing with you, saying like, yes, I remember this. Yes, I remember it being inappropriate and scary. Um, yeah. I would love to like 
talk to some of our teachers and be like, you know, did you even know exactly what was going to happen? Like, did you know they were yeah, going to use language like that? To a degree, the teachers were involved. Right. Um, I remember the teachers were acting usually as, like, more more friendly roles, let's say. Like, they weren't the slave owners. They, they weren't that. They were something else. But they were involved. Yes, definitely. And I remember, I remember who my roommate was. I won't say her name, but I remember us talking after. Yeah. And us saying, like, I wish I could go home. Like, I wish I could sleep in my own bed tonight and, like, talk yeah, to my and, parents. And that's the thing. Like, I don't understand um, why it was presented to children so young, especially when you can't go home and unload something that heavy. Exactly. You're, you're hours away from your, home, your house, probably for the first time. Um... And you were just traumatized for educational purposes. Yeah. And I'm trying to kind of reconcile in my head if the educational purpose outweighed the the, the scary nature of it. Based on people's reaction some 10, 15, 20 years later, I don't think it did because you're not recalling the education of it you're recalling that you were scared exactly i'm not recalling like any real lesson learned besides that it was an immersive experience that definitely i guess to some extent showed a fraction of the horror that slaves would have experienced but i don't know and a lot of people i saw some people commenting like you can't learn everything in a classroom and in books and that's true but true but you do not need to traumatize literal children right you know and it's also like at 10 years old i mean how how deep could we even get into the topic of slavery you know exactly like especially coming from the district we came from um no shade on them but we're a smaller community right like how much can they really teach us right to that degree like we didn't have any black teachers until late high school if that yeah depending on who you had so what could they really teach us of the african-american experience exactly we came from a very like um what's the word heterogeneous community you know mostly white a lot of rural families um we had very little diversity all of our teachers were white in middle school um and we only had a few students of color in our class and if you think about it, all of the students of color in our grade and the grade below us are related to me. Wow. That, yeah, exactly. That just tells you how small the community is. Right. Okay, so in 2013, Nature's Classroom was sued by a black family in Connecticut wow. for, their daughter's, for their daughter's experience in the Nature's Classroom. Wow. Um, do you think this was justified? Honestly, if the children felt traumatized enough and their parents were concerned about what they experienced, then yeah. You know, I'm did, any, did the, anything come of that lawsuit? Um, I did a little research and as far as I can tell, they stopped the program. Okay. Um, of running the activity. But I don't think that was... It doesn't really make up for it. Like, okay, you don't do it anymore, but... Right. Yeah. Um, but in that same year, in a response to um, the Washington Post regarding the lawsuit, Nature's Classroom, um, director John Santos said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that this is a historical event which can be tied to the classroom. Hmm. What are your thoughts? Because in my opinion, it can't be tied to the classroom. Uh, You know, I wish, because remember they made us keep like a journal while we were there? Yeah. I wish I could find that. I wish I could go back and read what I wrote. Because the only thing I have is like my recollection in retrospect. Yeah. And... I don't know. Like I said, I returned to Silver Bay YMCA in college for a student government team building. Oh, yeah. You you had mentioned that. How was that returning to 
a place that had terrified you as a child as a young adult. It was so weird seeing the landscape in a completely different Mm -hmm. light. Because I just remember... Literally, because you were in the dark the first time. Yeah, literally. I just remembered the darkness of the forest. We were all scared. We didn't know where we were, you know? If anyone had gotten lost, we wouldn't have been able to find our way back, you know? And that would have been really bad. Yeah. I mean, granted, we were a small class of 100 kids. Somebody would have found somebody, but still... The fact that you don't know where you are is really disorienting. Yeah, absolutely. And I also remember in college, I went to Russell Sage, and I remember every February, Russell Sage would have, like, a seminar on the Underground Railroad where we would listen to lectures, we would look at old pictures, you know, we would discuss um, post-colonial theory, and it was immersive, Mm -hmm. but we weren't role-playing, you know? Yeah. I don't know how effective that role-playing is in that situation especially when you're a child and you don't really fully understand the 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 yeah yeah i've done research where um actively role-playing this scenario is still a thing it's still done um obviously not by nature's classroom but by other organizations yeah but with older people with adults with teenagers with people who choose to be there yes that's completely different because we had no choice and to those who say we did well yeah we could have been like no i don't want to do this but then that cuts your your activity for the rest of the night exactly and you would have had to go back to your room by yourself and we go home the next day so yeah and i think the biggest thing for me with that again was like i i remember feeling very trapped yeah. And I don't know if you uh, if you know who Jane Elliott is or if you've ever watched any of her um, the exercises that she does with adult groups and groups of college students where she will do I an exercise. but I will check that out. She's excellent. Her name's Jane Elliott. She has been a teacher since the 50s or 60s and she started this exercise with her elementary school students um, the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. But the way that she okay. did it, the way that she did it was she separated her students by eye color and taught them how easy it is to hate someone based on an unchangeable aspect of their appearance. And I think that's that's, that's a good way to do it. There's definitely more effective ways to teach this lesson than to traumatize literal children. Right, or to tell children, like, okay, like, you're going to pretend that you're a black slave. Yeah. It's much easier like, to teach a child, yeah. you know, based on something that they know. Like, Jane Elliott would separate the kids based on, she would put brown-eyed kids in one group, and then everyone else with lighter eyes in a different group. And she would tell mm-hmm. them that blue-eyed or fair-eyed children were not as smart as brown-eyed children because they have less melanin mm-hmm. in their eyes. That's an interesting way to organize it. Right, and of course Jane Elliott doesn't actually believe that blue-eyed children are smarter than brown-eyed children, but she was just using something to teach, to put them in the shoes of a child of color. and that's a safer way to do it. Right, and and she did it in a classroom, you know, she didn't do it in the middle of the woods at night. Yes. Right, and so... I feel like that's a more effective way to do it is to do it in a more relatable way, especially with white kids. You know, you can't really exactly. you can't really tell a white kid, okay, we're gonna do this scary thing and you're gonna like pretend like you're a black child slave. Because how can you pretend to do that? Yeah, that that would be like looking at me and be like, okay, you're going to pretend you're an able-bodied person. Right. I can't do that. Exactly. So, you know, I think Jane Elliott is a great example. There are other ways to teach how easy it is to hate someone and to oppress someone mm-hmm. based on a presupposed belief that's not rooted in science, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I look at the whole nature classroom experience to where, as if they still did the reenactment, um, my oldest niece and nephew are about to be seven, and as like an aunt, I don't know if I would be cool with letting my child or any child I care about 
into that scenario. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I have some young cousins that I babysit, um, and the, the yeah. oldest is 12, and one of them is 10. And I just can't imagine putting them in that situation because I don't think that they would understand what was happening or why it was happening. Yeah, like, you were a literal baby. Right. In a sense, like, you've only been Earthside for a decade. Right. You, you're, you're not going to understand that. And also as 10 year olds, I don't, I think we realized that it was scary, but I don't think we realized that it was yeah. damaging. That's another thing that this whole thing is so interesting because like, we all kind of collectively see this social media post and we read it and we're like, holy shit, that happened to us. Yeah. Like, that, that was bad. Right. And also, like, most of us are white, like I said, and I yeah. I come from a very conservative religious family. And I don't think, yes. I don't remember talking to my dad after I went home to talk to him about it because I think I just accepted what happened. And I was like, okay, so they taught us what it was like to be a slave. And that was it. And so I just kind of accepted that. And I was like, oh, so it must have just been like this, you know? And I think that I don't, I don't. I didn't approach my dad on the subject because I didn't really have any questions afterward because I was a white kid and I just kind of accepted like, oh, this is the only way that they could have taught us this. I mean, I didn't have any questions either as um, a biracial kid, but also a white patron kid because A, I have an older brother. He did it before I did. Like, that must have been okay if Will did it. Yeah. Did your younger brother have to do it, too? Um, let's see. He would have been in fifth grade. He just graduated. So, I'm I'm thinking, no, he his year was the cutoff year, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because my little sister didn't do it either. And she's yeah. five years younger than me. Yeah, Randy's seven years younger than I am. Yeah. So, I don't, I think his year was the cutoff year. Yeah. But um, speaking to my older brother about it briefly, he said it was genuinely terrifying and he genuinely thought people were after him. Yeah, because it was hard to kind of like it was a thin line. It was hard to tell. Yeah, it was hard to tell the difference between how much of it was learning and how much of it was just kind of anta- be- being antagonized. Yeah. And obviously I come from um, a biracial family, so I have older cousins who are um, black people. So I talked to one of my older cousins and I was like, hey, do you remember your experience? And he was like, vividly, um, I remember the use of racial slurs and then my white classmates laughing at them and that's what kept me from realizing that it wasn't real. Right, and I think that was kind of part of the fallout from it too was that most yeah. of us were white and here we are listening to white adults who are in charge of us the camp counselors using this language yeah. you know so did that teach us that that yeah. language is okay to use I mean I certainly remember a lot of kids in our class in high school who used disparaging language I mean I think the whole Chatham community at least in our grade was a little too comfortably racist yes like, I remember, I think we took government economics together with Ms. Keegan. Yes, we did. We did. And I remember our class um, being majorly conservative because a lot of us came from conservative families and we would just kind of repeat what yes. we heard our parents saying at home. So I remember saying some really embarrassing and disappointing things looking back just because I had heard that on Fox News because my dad only watched Fox News so that was the only source I was getting at home yeah well you learn and you grow and you change and you may be a little late to the party but we're glad to have you yeah exactly and like I said to you the other day I feel like I'm proof that you can come from a conservative narrow-minded religious family and then still, as you get older, realize that that's not what you believe in. But like we've seen on Facebook, there are a lot of people that we went to school with who either never left Chatham or never had anything to challenge their beliefs. And so they still have the same small town racist mindset. 
and it's funny because small town mentality can really develop in any type of background like my younger brother who i love dearly is a diehard trump supporter oh my gosh really yes yes are your parents no my dad is um a democrat like he doesn't really give a shit about politics betsy doesn't either she actually despises trump so their political debates are hilarious yeah so that's not something that your brother learned from home that's something that he was socialized to believe in school yeah wow but at the same time he's also the kid that will punch the neighbor kid in the face for calling him a nigger yeah. hard art that's so it's so confusing to me just to go off on a little side note i i know that yeah. there are people of color who support trump but it just it doesn't make sense to me because of the way that trump incites ideas of violence and perpetuates exactly. white supremacy um and to speak from my own personal experience to the people in my life that are trump supporters um because there are a handful um i will never understand why trump mocking the disabled <laughs> was not a deal breaker me neither and do you remember that rally when he did that everyone yeah. cheered for him like obviously not all trump supporters are racist but they also decided pretty clearly that racism was not a deal breaker exactly and you know my my dad and my stepmom are trump supporters my dad his hero is ronald reagan and and my dad's Ooh. my dad's email address sam my dad's email address is at reagan.com i'm so glad we grew up <laughs> i'm glad we grew up too i also found out recently that to have an email address at reagan.com you have to pay for it so he pays specifically to have this email address yes when there's like millions of free hosting websites like you could just log into AOL and yeah have a normal one exactly and i see a lot of similarities between people who support trump and people who you know in the 80s were reaganites you know because ronald reagan was so damaging to our social culture like he is the one who created the myth of the welfare queen Yes. And Nancy Reagan's whole just say no war on drugs. That was it was started initially by Nixon, but Ronald and Nancy mm-hmm. Reagan are the ones who put it into action. See, I'm not, like the war on drugs. I feel like it's not a war on drugs. It's a war on black people and people of color. Exactly. All you have to do is look at the statistics and the rates of incarceration in different in different yes. ethnic groups and different demographics. So to kind of veer back toward like the slavery topic, slavery uh, yes, slavery was abolished on Juneteenth. On Juneteenth which just happened. Right. Um but also it hasn't been yeah, there's been 400 years where people are not in like visible shackles like out in public, but the prison system is legalized slavery. Exactly. And I think everyone should watch the documentary. What is that documentary on Netflix? 13? Yeah. 13? I just watched that mm-hmm. recently and it's incredible. And I know you said 400 years, but it's it's only been just over 200 years that, that really since yeah, cause slavery ended in 1863, but of course in in mm-hmm. Texas we know that it went until 1865. And so exactly. that's like if you were born in 1865 that's up until now that's two maybe three human lifetimes since slavery was abolished. That's a good way to look at it. There's like two and a half people between us and slavery. Right. And then you and have like, and then you have that's one whole person between us and segregation. Exactly. And then, you know, slavery ended in 1865, but then we had reconstruction and then we had, mm-hmm. you know, and then Jim Crow. Exactly. And we just found all these different ways to legalize slavery and oppression. Exactly. Because prisoners I, prisoners yeah. are you know, I think I don't remember 
what amendment it was or what law it was, but prisoners, they're, they're, they're slaves. They're forced to work. They don't get paid. Obviously, they're slaves. Or, no, they're, they're not slaves. They're prisoners, but they're basically I mean, slaves. they kind of are. Exactly. And, uh, I don't know. It's just... I feel like it's only been in the last couple of years that I've really woken up and started paying attention to things like this. Oh, good for you. Because, you know, in high school, like you said, there was only, like, probably less than five black kids that we knew in high school. And they were yeah. all related, like you said. And so it really wasn't until I went to college that I made friends with people of color. And so it really wasn't until then that I started paying attention to, you know, their conversations. And I, that's when I really started learning about the effects of generational mm-hmm. trauma. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is trying to break the generational cycle. Yes. And so one of my what, something that annoys me so much is when in response to Black Lives Matter, someone will use a straw man argument of black on black crime. But they're not they're not analyzing why there are high crime rates and high rates of domestic abuse and drug use in communities of color. It's because of disenfranchisement and generational yeah. trauma. And you can't have a conversation about black so-called black on black crime if you don't talk about the history of oppression in our society and the way that that is passed mm-hmm. down through generations of families of color. A good book to read is The New Jim Crow. Um, the author is escaping me, but I know the last name is Alexander. Um, we read it when I went to St. Rose for about a year. Um, we read it in my ethics class. Um, and it basically starts off where this young man, he's in prison because his father was in prison. His grandfather was in prison, and you follow it back far enough, his people were slaves. Right. Like, so yeah, there's definitely generational trauma, and even for um, Caucasian passing people like myself, there's definitely some things we have to unlearn. Exactly. And, you know, I, when I was in college, I double majored in English and American studies and I minored in women's studies. So there was a lot of overlap Mm -hmm. in the things that I was reading. And I took a class on African-American literature and we read Mm -hmm. um, the works of like Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois. And Mm -hmm. they don't all agree with each other. You know, there's not a singular there's no singular black thought you know because there's no singular black experience exactly and so which brings us back to our childhood whenever we talk about something quote unquote having to do with the black experience everyone would turn around in the classroom and look at the closest thing to a black person that was in the room yeah usually me or one of our other classmates that were black we didn't have very many right I think we only had I can only think of one, you were biracial, but I can only think of one black student who was in our graduating class. No, there were there two. There were two? Yeah. Even, even so, <laughs> that's only two. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I'm biracial, but I can also be identified as a black woman. Um, so, so... I guess you could say there were three, there were three people of color in our graduating class out of 130. Right. Exactly. That is literally that is literally three percent. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, you know, one thing that I think about a lot. One of my favorite authors is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and she is. She's from the continent of Africa. She's from Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And she has an excellent TED Talk about the dangers of a single story. And I think that it's so important to listen to Black people in academia talk about things like that. Because Mm -hmm. I think it can... And there are so many different situations where we lump people of color together. Mm -hmm. And for biracial people... I mean, you um, you can speak to this, I'm sure. There's kind of 
a disparity between I feel like there's just a disparity of identity because you there is because like okay so this is how I kind of identify um I don't I'm not white enough to be white but I'm not black enough to be black exactly and so do you find that I don't know do you find that you have to code switch when you're with different people yes all the time yeah and so you I used to say I, I used to say same at school and same at home are two different people. Yeah. And I didn't experience that, obviously, because I was in the majority. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I still do it now, like depending on who I talk to on the phone, I will hardcore code switch. And that's not something that I've ever really had to do. And that is a privilege, mm-hmm. obviously. But I didn't realize that that was a privilege until I went to college. I did not realize that that was something that students of color had to navigate because we didn't address it at all. Yeah. And so I remember... Because... Okay, so here's how to look at it from, like, a white person. Um, The reason why we code switch is because if we talk Black, we're uneducated. If we speak like a white person, quote unquote, because you can't speak a color. So, but if we sound more educated, like our Caucasian classmates or whoever, we're accused of speaking white. Right. I cannot tell you how many times I've been told I sound white or I'm not black, I'm white because (laughs) I am obviously well educated, I've gone I don't have a degree, but I've gone to college. Um, you know, I'm well-read, well-spoken, and apparently that makes me sound white and denounces my black heritage in some people's lives. Yes, and almost every friend that I have who's a person of color has a similar story to tell. I remember one of the girls um, who I had most of my classes, most of my English classes with in college, she was an English education mm-hmm. major, she was black, And I remember one class we were talking about, you know, cultural differences. And she was saying, you know, she had a white boyfriend. They're married now and they have a baby and he's so cute. Um, But I remember in class her saying that her family would act very different around her white boyfriend. And I remember her saying that her family would often criticize her because she liked things that they deemed as white things. Like she liked yeah. she liked designer bags. She liked to wear heels. She didn't like to wear basketball shoes, for example. Yeah. And I remember her talk, I remember this so specifically because everyone in our class like got really emotional when she was talking about, you know, if I have a child one day, it's going to be a child of mixed race. And I'm very scared for what he or she will experience because of the color of their skin and how they may not be fully accepted by, you know, the white side of their family and the black side of their family because they're not fully white or fully black. Exactly, and that's why educating your children who they are and where they come from is important. Right. There's another book that I love. It's by Nella Larson and it's called Passing. And the protagonist is a woman who is of color, but she can pass for white. And essentially what happens in that story is that her her lack of identity, her lack of a cultural identity, it, it drives her mad and it drives her to her end. I mean, I can, I can speak to that. I don't really feel like I have a solid cultural identity. Yeah. Because, obviously, I, most of the time, unless my hair is, like, really long, um, I usually pass. Yes. I mean, you, you've known me my entire life. Right. Pretty much. Yeah, we went to preschool if together. You did not, yeah. If you did not know who my parents were, would you assume I was white? Probably. Exactly. Probably for... Unfortunately, in the middle of filming her interview, Kelly and I had some technical difficulties. We'll be right back. All right, and we're back. I'm back. (laughs) So we were in the middle of discussing the fact that 
it was a very common thing to touch my hair. Yes. And it was. I mean, were you really a Chatham student if you didn't at least try to pet Sam once? <laughs> oh my gosh. And to think about that, just the freight, just the act of going into someone who you probably don't know that well. Maybe you do. I don't know. I wasn't friends with everybody, but just the act of going up to another full grown person and being like, can I cut your hair? Right. Think about how weird that is. Like, you don't go up to your friends and be like, can I, can I cut your hair? Right. It's definitely weird, yeah. and it's definitely, like, mild fetishization. fetishization. <laughs> True. And think about yeah. it, like, so there was best hair category in our yearbook. Mm-hmm. I did not get that. No, it was two blonde people. Two blonde white people. Right. My hair was better. <laughs> Agreed. I mean, just think of the social outcry there was when I shaved my head. I know, everyone was shocked. And I'm like, whatever, it's just hair, like... Right, I agree. (laughs) But yeah, honestly, I think the whole nature's classroom thing and growing up in Chatham there's definitely a lot to learn and like you said you can come from one place and grow up to be a whole different person you just gotta do it right exactly is is there anything to take away from a small town education like that though is there any takeaway to it other than that everybody's a little bit racist (sighs) well you know, there's a certain comfortability, there's a certain level of comfort living yeah. in a small town and knowing everybody. But when I think about what we took away from our small town education, yeah. I just, what I what I think about is just that I had so much more to learn. And to think some people choose not to go beyond that small town education and mentality and educate themselves. Because if you're white, you don't have to. True. You know. But as a mostly white person, I feel like even if you are white, you should. Yeah, you still have a responsibility to be a good human and to care about others. Um, that's why, like, I commend, um, um, white people, yeah, we'll just say white people. Um, I commend white people. Um, on educating themselves and being like, okay, this is what I was taught. Let me unlearn this. I'm sorry, black community and people of color and people who I hurt. Yeah, and it's very uncomfortable and unsettling to realize that you have so many learned biases was, that you don't realize a, that you have. Was there a moment in your um, either your adolescence or your young adulthood where you had to be introspective and be like, oh shit, I was kind of a bad person. Well, I've had a lot of those moments personally, but when it comes to being more open-minded about people who look different than me, I remember, I guess I did kind of learn it early on because one of my best friends in middle school um, was, she... She's a, she considers herself a woman of color. Her mother's a Brazilian immigrant. Mm-hmm. You know. I, but again, I know exactly who you're referencing. Yeah, and she's still one of my best yeah. friends to this day. But again, there's no singular experience for people of color. Yeah. So I, I had to travel and meet a lot of different people and listen to their stories and mm-hmm. have discussions about how we walk through the world differently. So you've had several of those. Oh shit, I have to unlearn things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, like, for example, in college, when I took a lot of cross, cross-cultural classes, <laughs> I realized how narrow my education had been. <laughs> I remember in one of my English classes in college on the first day, the, uh, everyone got an index card and we had to write down who we thought the like three of the best American authors were. 
and almost everyone, myself included, picked three white men. Interesting. Right. I think I picked Ernest Hemingway and William Faulkner and I think um, Jack Kerouac. Thinking on how I would currently answer that question, um, all three of my answers are white and unfortunately one of them is transphobic. And I know, yeah. and I know who you, I know you know who I'm referencing. I definitely do. Um, but in that same class, on the last day of class, we all got an index card again, and we're asked again to write down three people. And almost everyone picked uh, at least one woman and one person of color, just based yeah. on what we were exposed to in that class. I think on the last day, the people that I wrote down, I wrote down Edith Wharton, who's mm-hmm. one of the great liter- literary loves of my life. Um, I picked Toni Morrison, and I don't remember who else I picked, but very different from what I thought on the first day of that class, because when you think about the canon of American literature, you think about white men, mostly, you know, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Think about one of our shared loves of childhood, the Harry Potter series, written written by a woman who used a pseudonym because she was told that that book would not sell if it was written by a woman. Exactly. Now her discretions are neither here nor there. They're not good. She's not a fan media these days, but her work is good. Yeah. And so you kind of have to learn how to separate an artist from their work if you can. And I, I can and I can't because looking back on those books, it it really opened. Like if you read them as an adult, you realize things. Yeah, a huge lack of diversity in the characters. Exactly. And so I think J.K. Rowling is a good example. You know, when she first tried to publish her books, she used um, she used a different name because exactly you know exactly like you said she was told that the books wouldn't sell if she put her actual name joanne kathleen but i mean even personally not to cut you off but even personally when i write i don't use samantha i use sam yeah and that's definitely something that we deal with and so i think it's interesting i think it's a very nuanced subject because you look at jk rowling a person a woman a writer who dealt with sexism in her career but at the same time she's very narrow-minded when it comes to other issues of of feminism and sexuality and identity and maybe that's her upbringing we can never know but at the same time you're an adult you're responsible to furthering your education right and so you can be groundbreaking in some ways and then still be in the past in other ways exactly and I feel like that's what the literary community, that's what all communities actually need. Someone to be groundbreaking. Um, eventually, I will finish writing my memoir because I have started one. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> one of my many quarantine projects. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, definitely there is a need to be groundbreaking and earth-shattering in all aspects, but also continue to learn and exactly. yourself. Regardless of what you accomplish professionally, you still have a personal responsibility to analyze the biases that you've learned. And then also, if you're a, if you're a white creator, understand and check your privilege. Yeah, totally. And also, maybe not write more diverse characters because you don't really, you can't speak to that experience, but maybe leave room for more diversity in your books or your pieces of work or whatever your medium may be. Right. And that brings it back to me. That brings it back to Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie talking about the dangers of a single story. We have J.K. Rowling, who's who I don't know, like it's it was easy as a white kid to read Harry Potter because all the kids were white British kids. But I don't I obviously don't know what it was like reading a book like that as someone who's interested in 
you know, the journey and the building's Roman aspects of the story, but also not seeing any characters who look like you. I mean, the the world of the media is interesting in itself, especially being um, a couple things. I'm obviously disabled, biracial, a woman, and part of the LGBT community. First time I've ever said that out loud, but um, yay! <laughs> But here we go. Um, so yeah, there's not a lot of representation out there. Um, there's no one on TV or in the media or in books that look like me is anything like me. So we need that. Right, and that's something that marginalized communities have been dealing with forever. Like when you hear the uproar of older white heterosexual people saying that gay characters in children's shows are inappropriate and damaging. It's, it's like beautiful and it's cute and just it needs to be done. Exactly, because people in marginalized communities have always had to adjust their their like absorption of these these cultural and media projects. Like mm-hmm. you you constantly watch TV shows where everyone's straight, everyone's white, everyone's attractive. And so watching it, you kind of have to insert your own experience into that and kind of edit it in your mind so that it applies to you. I mean, look who we grew up with. One of our very best friends for a long time, who is still my friend, but um, you're kind of trying to man things with him. He, yes, he's white and yes, he's a male, but he's gay in a small town. Yeah. So like his growing up experience must have been hard I can't imagine I can't either and it makes me so sad that he waited until his 20s to tell anyone yeah and that's not I've never had to come out in any way well I I feel like the closest thing of the closest coming out experience I've ever had would be coming out as a democrat to my family (laughs) I mean personally I don't feel the need to come out um because honestly it's none of anyone's fucking business but mine (laughs) right but um i think i i did kind of i did kind of have a singular experience growing up in our hometown because i was never challenged in any way to prove my identity to anybody Mm -hmm. and like i said it wasn't until i went to college where i had a more diverse group of friends and then i studied abroad and i was traveling And it wasn't, the first time I ever felt like the other, so to speak, was when I traveled to Poland. And in Eastern Europe, it's a generalization, but in Eastern Europe, they don't really like Americans. And Mm -hmm. that was the first time I really felt out of my element was when I was in an entirely different part of the world. You know, I could travel all across the United States and probably fit in anywhere because I'm a heterosexual white person. Welcome to my life, honey, where you gotta figure things out. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm also, I don't know, I'm different, I guess, because I grew up with the mentality that I never felt the need to have to prove myself to anyone, yeah. ever. Like, I'm here, deal with it or don't, I don't really care, I'm still here. Yeah, and that's an attitude that I never really had to build for myself. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I feel like a hypocrite when I post on Facebook about Black Lives Matter because I don't I don't I don't want anyone to think I'm a hypocrite. I don't want anyone to think that I'm trying to be a white savior or anything like that or but at the end of the day you kind of have to just do what you believe is right and not worry about how people are going to react exactly. to it because and... because people are going to react based on their experience and their own biases. Exactly, and I know you listened to the first episode, so the term that we've been using for um, the white people who want to help is white but woke. Mm. Um, Because wanting to make the world a better place does not make you a hypocrite. No. I don't know if I would consider myself woke. I think that I'm still waking up because there are a lot of things that I'm still realizing every day that I, you know, I need to put in the work and do research and learn because these are just not, these are not things that I've had to deal with on a personal level. 
I mean, I've obviously experienced more than you have, but um, I don't consider myself woke. I consider myself woke-ish. Right. Like, there's still more I have to deal with and more that I won't deal with because sometimes I'm passing. Right. I think, you know, I think the bottom line is that there's always going to be more work to do and you have yeah. to be, you have to be willing to humble, humble yourself and put your ego aside and be uncomfortable. And I think that's the takeaway from this episode is there's more work to do in every aspect, be it education, be it the cultural arts, be it socially, there's still more work to be done. Absolutely, because you look at some of our most beloved institutions in America, like Broadway, for example. Broadway is so whitewashed. It is. I mean, there's, I mean the- there's one show that I think of off the top of my head, and isn't it about slavery, the color purple? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, that's a that's a beloved classic, but it's so, it's like one of the only things that I don't know it's one of the only raw experiences that I've seen on Broadway of you know the experience of disenfranchised people of color there needs to be a musical about a wheelchair user I'm just saying (laughs) or even like I saw a production of West Side Story and everyone was white and half the cast is supposed to be Hispanic, Hispanic. you know? Yeah, but I was gonna say, I'm not a huge theater person like some of our friends are, but I know that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so that's an issue that we see all the time in television and movies. We have characters that are supposed to be queer and they're being played by straight people. Or you have a character that's trans and they're being played by straight people. Cough, or cough, cisgendered people. Cough, cough, glee. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I never liked that show. <laughs> there was so much wrong with it. Yeah, and now especially in the news recently, other cast members have been saying that Leah Michelle was incredibly intolerant and racist. Wouldn't surprise me. And Does she issued sense? an apology, but it wasn't really an apology. It was like a half-assed apology. <laughs> It was like, I'm sorry that I got caught for being a racist. And that's, we see that all the time with celebrities who have to apologize for being unsavory in some way. Like, I always think of Louis C.K. when a bunch of women accused him of sexual harassment and assault. In his Mm -hmm. apology, he said three or four times, I took advantage of them because they admired me. And so he's kind of like making a scene about his fame while also doing a half-assed apology for getting caught for being gross. Using your celebrity to be gross is not okay. Yeah. Absolutely. We see that all the time. But also to touch back on what you said, how um, the entertainment industry needs more um, representation, um, there's a really good TED Talk by Maysoon Zaid. Um, she's a stand-up comedian with cerebral palsy. And she said she is an actress as well, and she's been in some small things, but she gets called in for things and they'll be like, no, or they'll be like, it's a disabled character, but no. And she'll be like, well, if I can't play a disabled character, you can't hire an able-bodied actor to play that person either. The way she put it was, if a wheelchair user can't play Beyonce, Beyonce can't play a wheelchair user. Yeah, one hundred percent. And we see so much tokenism in things like that. Like in Glee, for example. Let's go back to Glee. There was like a token character in a wheelchair, and there was a token yep. lesbian cheerleader. That's the first time I actually saw a character on television in a wheelchair, and they didn't even do it right. Yeah. And he, he's not actually a wheelchair user. Is that actor? No. Yeah. Like, at least, like, Breaking Bad, they did it right. They wrote a character with cerebral palsy and casted an actor with cerebral palsy. Yeah. But to portray a disability on TV and do it wrong, no. Right. And going back to Nature's Classroom, expecting yes. us to portray slave children of color 
there we go. We have come full circle in our family. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, to go back to that, you can't expect white children to portray anything they're not. Like I said, that would be like an able-bodied person trying to portray a wheelchair user or vice versa. It can't be done. Right. So ultimately, I think there was so much wrong with that experience. And I'm glad they were called out on their shit and they don't do it anymore. Me too. However, I don't, I don't think the intention was, was malevolent. I think the yeah. intent, I think it I think they really did intend for it to be an immersive learning experience but it was just executed very very poorly. Yes, very poorly. Right. Kind of like representation in the media. And it was also kind of bizarre like the rest of nature's classroom was like we're playing games outside and we're singing campfire songs and then all of a sudden one night you throw us into the woods at, at in the dark and tell us that we're pretending to be slaves. Yeah, that, that was strange. And just the whole, it didn't fit with the crunchy vibes. Like, no. my camp counselor literally told us he lived in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. They were weird. They were weird as hell. Um, but yeah, so like, I, I don't, I don't think them stopping the program and half-assed apologizing for it makes up for it at all. Um, I did reach out to the organization for comment, and they haven't as of today. Um, so I don't think they will. I don't think they will either. Um, but I did inquire for comment. Um, but I don't think they will. Mm. But it's it's funny to look back on 15 years later because we're the same age as the people that scared us. Right. And you're right about what the takeaway was, because looking back, I don't remember learning. I just remember being very confused and uncomfortable and scared. Exactly. Being 25 ourselves, um, if given the opportunity where you were a counselor and someone was like, hey, we're going to do this to children, what would you do? Oh, I would absolutely challenge it. I would definitely try to start a dialogue of what the intention was and... And that's the thing. Why did no one start a dialogue? Right. And like I said, I don't remember having an in-depth discussion with our teachers afterwards. No, we didn't. It was just like, oh, everybody came home from nature classroom. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely don't remember anyone really unpacking that experience for us. And we couldn't do it ourselves. We were 10. I don't think anyone did ever. And that's why when we all saw that post on social media we all saw it floating around about did anyone experience this? And we were all like, holy shit. This is nature's classroom. Why Why did no one unpack this? Yeah. That, that is probably the biggest issue for me is like at least if we had some sort of discussion afterwards with our teachers about what the point of it was it would have been better to talk to us about it beforehand but they didn't even talk to us about it afterwards I mean in the in the lawsuit that I was reading um the case in Connecticut her class had to be debriefed by a therapist wow a psychologist had to help these children unpack it. And they were older than we were. They were like seventh grade, near fifth grade. Yeah. So what does that tell you that you are doing to children when you have to bring in licensed professionals to help them deal with the trauma? Exactly. And our class did not have that resource. No. Yeah. Looking back, I think it was definitely irresponsible because how can you expect 10-year-olds to experience something so confusing and frightening and then leave them to their own devices to interpret it? Exactly. Shit, at 10 years old, we could barely be okay with the fact that, like, some of our our classmates didn't like the same gender we did. Right. But to throw 
racism on us and be like, deal with this on your own. Definitely an irresponsible move. Right. I would love to speak to some of our fifth grade teachers and ask them what their point of view was on that. It would be a good idea. I wonder if anyone will... I wonder if they have Facebook. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I mean, it's been a hot second. They're probably all really old now. (laughs) (laughs) Most of them probably are. I mean, a couple of them did retire the year that we were in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. So I wonder... And I also, like, because most of them have been there, te- been a teacher there forever. Like, how many times did you experience this? Right. And not say anything. Right, because I would imagine that over the years, the general reaction from kids would be the same. Like, just confusion. Yeah. And, like, fear. Right, so and I think... Point, and I At think... what point do you, do you, as an educator, look at yourself and be like something's wrong right I should say something and I think on your post on Facebook the people who were commenting that they didn't think it was a big deal were just Mm -hmm. they weren't I don't want to say they weren't affected by it but they just didn't see anything wrong with it because they weren't they didn't really have a personal reaction to it exactly and we were 10 you know we didn't think that it was wrong it was our teachers who we trusted who you know subjected us to this immersive experience, experience. and so you just so kind of take that at what as... point do you think our former educators should be held liable for that you know it's tough because again i don't think the intention was bad but you know i think I want, you know, I, I wouldn't doubt that. I, I bet that a lot of them look back and think about that and wonder if they made the right choice. I wonder if they do. And I wish I knew how to get a hold of somebody to talk. Yeah. But definitely things to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like if I were a teacher, that's something that probably would have kept me up at night. As someone who did her first two years of college to become a teacher um I I could never yeah I could never and like I I was going for like like kindergarten age to go to be faced with 10 year olds and be presented with that experience right I still I still could never I would have spoken up right away I mean, it's easy to say what you would do when you're not faced with that situation, though. Right. Well, we have come full circle. I think we've talked about everything we have to talk about. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. This was awesome. Wheelchair Parking Only is an anchor podcast. It's written and produced by me, Sam Van Alstyne. Interact with the show on social media by following the Facebook page Wheelchair Parking Only Podcast and on Instagram as Wheelchair Parking Only. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>